Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 3. Today, James will be uh, comparing so-called wisdom with real wisdom, biblical wisdom, that which starts in the fear of the Lord. He is going to keep us from segmenting our lives into different parts. Somehow we do the church thing, and then we do the make sure our beliefs are right thing, and then we do whatever we want to do. He's going to show us that wisdom instead works itself out in works, very similar to what we've already seen throughout the book. Um, it doesn't just do whatever it wants to. Wisdom is about a complete life change that shows a true fear of God. What we're going to do is start in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. The text today is 13 through 18, but we're going to start back because I want us to remember our context. I want us to see where we're at in light of what James has already been saying. So if you follow along with me, we'll read 3, 7 through 18, and we'll pray and we'll begin. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. God, we give this time over to you. We ask that the preaching of your word would be the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified so that nothing else would be coming from our lips but the praises of Jesus Christ. May we boast only in the cross of Christ. We thank you for your word which teaches, reproves, corrects, instructs us, spurs us on to worship. We ask that you would take it this morning and work James's message our fellow brother, our fellow Christian and pastor who comes along to tell us, guys, pay attention to these things in your life for they must match up with Jesus Christ, the one that you say you love. May we do that then, God. May we respond in faith. May you bear much fruit, as you've said through Luke in this parable of the sower, that this morning you would continue to sow in, in, in our ears the truth so that we might then internalize and believe and not go away and not worry about it, but rather that we would 
it would impress us and we realize that we can't do it. And so every bit of us reaches out for Jesus. May you make much of yourself through the text today, God, and would you cause us to be soft for your working, for your honor and glory, and for our good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last week we observed wisdom that had truly been received. We did that specifically by looking at how it worked itself out in bridling your tongue. Again, remember that we have three big themes that are going through all of the book. We have steadfastness, we have wisdom, and we have this idea of partiality. When we talked last week, we looked at receiving wisdom, and it meant that you ought to do something, specifically last week, bridling your tongue. This is what it looks like for someone who is mature or perfect, the perfect man. Remember, we talked about this. That's what they do. They bridle their tongue, meaning spiritually mature, whole, singular in their devotion to God. That's what this type of person looks like. Their insides match their outsides, or their heart works in unison with their hands. I, I don't know if I was the only one this week that was impacted by this message, but my family and me were like such good examples of the biting, devouring, spitting, poison tongue uh, that we were constantly coming back. And Chris and I were like, this scenario, that scenario. I was gone during the day. These two things happened. I was, Chris, and you were gone this time. These two things happened. I yelled at the kids here. We were upset about this thing. Yes, I do do those things because I'm a sinner. But praise God, saved by grace. But James was so helpful for me saying, I need to put to death me and Jesus has to live through me or else I'm never going to be able to tame the tongue. That was the message last week that we saw, that true wisdom says, yeah, you're going to make the mistake and you're going to actually rebelliously choose to spit poison out of your mouth. But a wise person sees that and repents and says, God, would you get a control of my tongue? This is what day-to-day -day sanctification looks like, guys for us to repent and to believe the truth about who God is. And he then changes our speech over time as he does so, as we grow in knowing him. For it is only through faith in Christ that we can possibly see our tongue change. So I don't know if I was the only one, but man, last week James's message was helpful for me. We listened as James first explained to us the power of the tongue. And then he went further though than just talking about the power. Remember we talked about the bit that was in the, the horse's mouth? and the rudder that steered this huge ship, and then that tiny fire that once it's struck, it's a match itself, and it's lit in a dry meadow, the whole thing goes up in flames. As a transition point, it wasn't just about power, it was also about how destructive that power can be. And we talked about the destructive power of the tongue in your life, whether it's your family members, whether it's those that you work with, whether it's fellow believers or your kids or your siblings, or it's just the things and the lies that you tell yourself in your own head. We talked about the power of the tongue. In short, we need to bridle it. We realize that we need to show then self-control. They need to submit, then all of us do, if we're believers, we need to submit all of our members to Jesus Christ and his lordship. He's taking all of those within the congregations, uh, and he's talking to them about this, but during last week, he was specifically honing in on a group that was very sincere but they're struggling with their tongue. Perhaps it's immaturity in some way. This is a new truth for them, possibly. And he's saying, guys, get a hold of your tongue. It's very important. And he's sincerely saying, whoa, yeah, I, I shouldn't be a teacher. I'm, I'm spewing all kinds of junk. i got to stop that. These are the people that want to love Christ and who are in, in need of a reminder and admonition to discipline themselves for Christ-like speech. 
Today, James is not starting a new topic, although it certainly seems like it. As you're reading, we're doing tongue, 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 and all of a sudden it's, um, you know, anyone that's wise, stand up. It seems like a new topic or like he's starting something new. I can assure you he's not, though. Instead, what he's doing, he's turning from these sincere believers who know that they need to mature and be more like Christ and bridle their tongue, and now he's turning to the rest of the group. And he's kind of saying, those that are seemingly mature, those in the new congregation who say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of got a hold of my tongue. I'm not one that's choosing to be up front and trying to be a leader. I look, I look a little bit better. He's turning to that group now and saying, you too. You have a problem as well. These guys, of course, I instructed them this wisdom about making sure that they bridle their tongue, but you also need to receive wisdom. In fact, that we, as we ended last time, the last couple illustrations showed us the duplicity of our heart. This idea of asking, can a grapevine produce figs? Or can like a salt pond create fresh water? Because that's what's happening. Because the reality is that the real stuff is going to eventually come out. And he shows us this in, in, our, in, our, in our speech. Instead, again, like I said, he's turning to look at these guys and saying, you also then must receive wisdom. And it needs to happen at the most basic source. Remember we talked about the, the, the spring or, or that which spewed this forth or like the grape vine. The source from this is the real issue. Not just the fruits. The fruits can look good. But the real issue that we ended with last week is that what, what's controlling all this? And it comes back to Jesus and what he says in Luke 6.45. He changes and stops talking about the tongue and he says, let's talk about the heart. Because this is where all this junk is generated from. All this sin all this evil is generated from here at the source. He moves from the tongue to the heart, and we know that each of us possess a wicked, deceptive heart. It's only a matter of time before what's inside will come out. It's going to happen. Our context, then, is leading us to say right words are good. We just talked about words, talked about speech. The context is saying right words are good, but they're not enough. And they will eventually betray you. If they haven't yet, they will. They'll show what's actually inside. And what you really need to deal with is the source. What you really need to get down to is the heart. James worked this over last week with all this discussion uh, on the tongue and its power. And we considered all these illustrations. Uh, and, you know, we just need to change the words that come out of our mouths and maybe that would be better. And he's, again, Jesus cuts to that and says, your heart is the real problem. Bitter water isn't going to be made sweet by you willing it to be more sweet or by you sugaring the, the stream. That's not going to actually help it become what it's supposed to be. The only thing we'll ever change it is by that fresh water being changed from a salt pond to a real freshwater spring. That can only happen supernaturally. This week, James is going to deal with everyone, though. He's going to deal with this person that's struggling with taming their tongue, that's sincere, and they're trying, and they're, they're going to need to hear that this source, the heart, needs to be changed. But it's also to this believer that says, I'm already wise. I'm not going around blabbing it out and showing everyone that I want to be a teacher. I'm not, I'm not in that category. And what James is doing then is showing us that the real problem is here again. Let's look at verse 13 to start this off. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Will the real wise people please stand up? He kind of says, hey, what's, if you really know about the Christian life, step forward. Let's talk about this. I want to see who says that they identify with this crowd. So when he does this, they say, okay, 
this opportunity for those that say they have wisdom to now come forward and now look a certain way. If I were in the situation, if someone asked me, if you were wise, go ahead and present yourself, I'd be preparing like my biblical uh, knowledge and make sure I get my story straight. I'd make sure I was brushed up on my Hebrew vocab and like I've been to seminary, I better be ready for that kind of stuff. I want to make sure I have like the right arguments that I've used in, uh, in, in leading people to Christ or I'd want to make sure I had some scenarios planned out that I had led people or directed them in a good, wise way. If someone's saying you got to show your wisdom, I'd be, ready, I'd be trying to get all those different things ready. But James doesn't ask for any of that. He does not ask for an answer. He asks for a demonstration. He doesn't care about what I say out of my mouth in this scenario where he's giving me this opportunity to tell me all what I say I believe in, what is wise. Instead, James says, you must show your works in the meekness of wisdom. And that can only be shown from good conduct or a good lifestyle. He doesn't want an answer. He wants a demonstration. He's calling them out. He's saying, prove it. If you remember, we've talked about something. This if you Look back at 2.18. He said this before. Show me your faith without your works. Go ahead. Show it. I, what I will do is I'll show you my faith by my works. I can prove it through these things. Very similar here. Step forward, all that call themselves wise, and show us your works in the meekness of wisdom. Actually, you don't even need to step forward. You can go sit down because we have a life that we've seen of you already living out in front of us. So actually, the test is already out there. Now it's for us to assess whether or not you're actually wise or not. You can sit back down. You don't need to say anything. Your life is what's going to show the truth. Are you actually wise or do you just say you're wise? You can almost see like a stunned look on my face when I'm like, or the people that say they're wise and they're like, now sit back down. Because like, you're ready with all the answers. you got all the right things. You know that you've prepared and you have the right answers and you have all the things memorized. You're supposed to. The, the doctrine's right. I mean, I wasn't a teacher, so I look, i, I got to be right, right? Maybe that works with worldly wisdom, like this idea of presenting the right speech out and then having it all neat and tidy. But that's not what James says to do. He doesn't say, give me the right doctrine and speech. He knows that. We're talking about wisdom that springs forth from the fear of the Lord. One that actually says, I know who God is and I know who I am. And thus, this is the way I live. We are not saying then, what we are saying is live wisely. We're not saying say wisely. Obviously, we should do that. But he's saying what I want to see is your life. I want to see it walked out, talked out. I want to see you live wisely. And so we realize that James is requiring people to prove it, to show it. But, but I want to make sure before we move on from this verse that we don't miss something. Truthfully, it's probably not just a small detail. It's, it's rather probably the main point of our text today. There is something in this first verse that is going to help us understand the actions of a wise man and what they look like. What does James mean when he says then, show your works in the meekness of wisdom? That's not a phrase I use very often. Uh, Son, make sure you show your works in the meekness of wisdom. I don't say that, and I don't hear a lot of people saying that. Um, but we've seen this term meekness before, and we understand wisdom. Let's start to think about this together. It goes back to 121 when he said this. He said that we need to receive with meekness the implanted word. We had a whole discussion then what it means about to be meek or have meekness as a characteristic. We learned that meekness was another way of saying poor or lowly. 
We talked about our own spiritual bankruptcy and our utter neediness that we couldn't complete the picture. We had no way of doing so. We were spiritually bankrupt. We found out then also that a person that understands their position is humbled, and they have nothing to claim on their own. So I'll go one step further here, not just that we learn it from James, but Jesus has done this. Jordan talked about this morning that James is pulling from Old Testament wisdom literature, all of the Old Testament actually, and then most importantly, he's seeing Jesus take all those teachings and interpret them perfectly through himself. And so I think it's appropriate that we go to Matthew 5, 5. You know where it is. You've heard it. I'm just going to say it. Blessed are the meek. He commends this to his followers. But, but even further than that, in Matthew 11, he goes one step further to talk about himself. Not only does he say, you should be meek, he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Same word here. He is meek. Jesus was characterized by meekness. He feared the Lord he was obedient to his will. Sometimes we don't think that Jesus obeyed, but absolutely he did. We're like, he doesn't need to obey, right? He's Jesus. No, he, he emanates obedience to the Father. So Jesus obeys. He loves his Father. He loves wisdom. He acts in great humility. And this is very helpful for us. We see not only that James tells us to be meek, to act out in the meekness of wisdom, but then he tells us that Jesus told us to do so, or I'm telling you that. And then Jesus also says, I am meek. So there's no way to get out of this. Something that we ought to be doing is acting wisdom out in meekness, humility. Wisdom reveals then truth that God is big and people are small. And when we see that for what it is and we believe it to be true, it doesn't just come out in statements. It comes out in a life completely changed. If we believe it's true that God is actually enormous and in control of all things and good and sweet and righteous and loving, and we are created dust mites in his image, like, like, we, we start to see the hugeness of him and how we ought to then submit ourselves to him. It also helps us then to help see how we interact with our fellow man, fellow dust mites. We start to realize that we're not much better than anybody else. And there somehow, somehow we realize that humility is a proper response. Meekness is a proper response. A truly wise person's life will be characterized by works performed in humility. And so James tells us that a Christian can only prove himself to be truly wise when he demonstrates his works and does so in humility. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Let me give you the, the, the Chris Lowndes version. Like the, uh, it's like this. But if you've got a problem on the inside, inside of your heart, where no one else can see, like, you know, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in there, then don't lie to us and say that you're somehow wise. You're not. That's not true. And so what you're doing is actually boasting against the reality of the situation. You're not wise. God's wise, and the way that you're acting is totally unwise. You've got a problem with this. You've you got to understand that, that this is the, what James is telling us, and he's building this argument. What is this bitter jealousy then and this selfish ambition that he talks about being in our hearts? Bitter jealousy. This is not a good jealousy. There is good jealousy within Scripture. Zealousness or jealousy. We see God have this type of action for his people as he is jealous for them or as he's jealous for good works. 
That's not what we're talking about here because he added an adjective right at the beginning. He says, bitter jealousy. This is not a good thing. This bitter jealousy, again, is probably something more like envy. It's something that would be like grating inside. It's that stewing feeling of, of passion or desires for yourself to be promoted. Somehow it's this idea that you're passionate for someone else's stuff or maybe their position or maybe the power that it would be yours and you would fit into that role instead. What about selfish ambition? This is really ugly too. (laughs) This is that scheming desire to promote oneself or one's ideas or one's group over another's. It looks out for its own interests, uh, its own advancement. And selfish ambition actually is a vision for the future that sees me on top. And so I'll kind of do whatever I need to do, especially I don't want people to see it. I'm like totally egotistical, but I'll do what I need to do to get to be on top. Truly a selfish ambition. Can you see the core problem, though, that James James is doing? Both of these find their roots in the political spectrum, where people in different parties are vying for position over the other one. This idea of selfish ambition or jealousy that they want this spot or that person wants this spot. And so we realize that that's happening in the church, that that is actually bound up in hearts of believers as well. The core problem, though, it's interesting that he's contrasting this idea of selfish ambition and jealousy against the first thing he talked about, acting and doing works of meekness of wisdom. We ended verse 13 by mentioning this importance of a life that's lived in meekness or humility. Here James points out the problem of hearts that are dominated by pride. Think about that. Selfish ambition, jealousy, all those are rooted in my desire to be known or made much of. These people are bitterly jealous and full of selfish ambition, and it's all pent up inside their hearts. They can hide it. If you have these things inside of you, don't live a lie against the truth, James says. Don't stand up as one that says they're wise. You're not. And this idea of boasting that he says, this isn't necessarily a negative word for boasting. He's not saying the sin of boasting. He's talking about like that you claim to be wise. You boast of this. You boast against the truth. It's not true. You claim to be a wise person, but that's not true. You're actually lying to us. The result then, he said, would be lying if you promote that you are some sort of a a wise person. Don't claim to be wise. Don't lie to us about who you really are. Don't think that you're wise. James isn't saying that they are purposefully deceiving, like they're lying and they know it. Actually, he's saying that probably they are deceived. And so the truth that they think is truth when they're speaking out, that they're wise, is a lie. So what even all of their speech is coming out of them as not truth because they believe a lie in the first place. He's pointing out that they aren't actually wise. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now he just calls it out. Now he's just getting right to it. What, are, what, you're, what you guys are doing, that ain't wisdom. At least not the wisdom from above. That is not the wisdom of God whatsoever. What you're doing is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Think about source for a minute, the source of these things. Earthly, this is not from God. This wisdom is unspiritual, not from that of the Holy Spirit. This is demonic wisdom, very possible that this is not coming from God, but coming from demons. Again, I realize that that may sound a bit dramatic. We don't talk about demons in hell and, and Satan being the one, except maybe in joking, we're like, 
there was a demon in my, commu- my computer this morning. I couldn't get through my email. And we, we kind of like take it lightly. But when are we going to get serious about what James is saying? He is telling us that this pride goes back to demons. I think it's going to make sense when we consider what angelic Bible character might we know that had this as his defining problem, pride. A person who had such a great amount of pride that he believed that he could outdo God, outdo God and take his position as the most high. If Lucifer a great angel of light desired that he might ascend to heaven above the stars of God and set his throne on high and ascend above the heights of the clouds and make himself like the most high, Isaiah 14, then I think it's legitimate for us to say also, when we are dominated by pride, we are channeling this hubris, this pride from a demonic source. So we should be just as serious about it as he is. This so-called wisdom that is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But that's not all. (laughs) He's going to show us pride, that which is in the heart, and he's going to connect it to the observable, the stuff that we can actually see, the real-life actions. In the reverse way, James is going to take a look at these people's life, and he's going to prove it for them, that they're not living true wisdom. Verse 16, for jealousy and selfish ambition exist, for where they exist, excuse me, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You want to see jealousy and selfish ambition? Stuff that is pent up in the heart? Look no further than a community that struggles with disorder and every sin. A community like this reveals what is actually going on inside the heart. And these actions prove that the wisdom they claim is not from above, but rather It's from somewhere else, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. I I want to take a minute and hone in a word here because it's it's James bringing up another subject that he's actually touched on before. This word disorder is first when he talks about. James says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. This is an important word. We've actually seen it. We've not seen it as disorder, the English rendering. We've seen it two other places. We've seen it rendered Restless in 3.8 and unstable in 1.8. We've talked about this, this idea of 1.8, this unstable in all his ways, a man that's tossed by the wind who doesn't believe. He's not whole or complete or perfect. Or in in 3.8, we talked about that, that snake, that unpredictable, almost like a drunken, unpredictable, restless snake that we had no idea and way to control. This is what he is talking about. There is disorder, there is instability, there is confusion amongst the community. As they are working together, there's no stability. There's no way for them to stay unified. Instead, we have confusion, disorder, and instability. But not only that, where pride, jealousy, and selfishness exist, the seeds have been planted for every different kind of sin known to man. Think about it. Pride will lead to anger. Pride will lead to covetousness. Pride will lead to lust. Pride will lead to gossip. Pride will lead to bitterness. And the list goes on and on and on. These are the seeds that will bring forth a garden that you don't want as a believer. Pride will lead to all these things. It's not the wisdom from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And we should have nothing to do with it as believers. Look at verse 17. It's going to turn turn the corner for us. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and it's sincere. James turns now away from the so-called wisdom to real wisdom. He's given us a lot to think about about the so-called wisdom and how it starts to look like our life. But now he's going to turn to us and say, let me show you the meekness of wisdom. Let me show you what this looked like, the real wisdom. What we have here is essentially a virtue list. You may have heard that term before, or maybe a vice list, the opposite of that. A vice list would be uh, murder and uh, gossip and lying and drunkenness and adultery. It'd be a bunch of bad things all topped on top of each other, listed. This is the opposite of that. We see this and this good thing, this good thing, this good thing. This is a virtue list. Think about it, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is good stuff. This is all stuff as believers that we'd want to be on our list. But it isn't just a copy and paste from some other writers, because we see several of these throughout the New Testament, where we'll see good things pile on top of other good things. In Galatians 5, this is exactly how Paul expresses the fruit of the Spirit. He shows you this good thing, and then this one, and then this one on top of it. But, but James's list is not a cut and paste of that one or other ones. In fact, there's a little bit of overlap, but it, when you compare the two, they're not like some uncanny representation of each other. In fact, there seems to be missing things in James's list that Paul's goes into far greater detail about the fruit of the Spirit. So as students of the Bible, one of the things we should be asking is, no wonder some of these guys didn't like James. They like Paul a lot more. He covers a lot more. He's a lot more academic. He's got like a fuller scope of understanding the fruit of the Spirit. It must be better. No. When we think about this, we have to think about what he's trying to do. Is it possible that he's looking for something within the context to help us here? Is there a way for us to look at it and get some clues about why he is doing this? Why is it a more narrow focus? Perhaps James isn't trying to do the same thing as Paul. Maybe he's trying to do something else with a different focus, with a different group of people, in a different region. Is it possible that he has a different purpose? I'm going to read for you 17, 18, and 1 of chapter 4. You can look if you want to, but I'd like you to listen, actually, so that you can catch what he possibly could be dealing with as a problem in the church, all right? 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Anyone see from these three very simple verses that he could possibly be trying to address something in the congregation? Uh, James is connecting wisdom with peace. He is showing that there is a need here. It seems that James is talking to a community of believers that is struggling with disunity, that they are not peacemakers, but they're struggling with this idea of peace. And next week we'll come back to this and we'll look all into this idea of quarreling and fighting and all the things that come from it. He's already highlighted anti-wisdom for us, this idea of a dominated heart of pride. And now he's highlighting wisdom, an overwhelming emphasis on loving others, which is already consistent with what James has been saying already. But doing so in humility, and then even to the point it's almost like a peacemaker, something that we know Jesus talks about. Think about these things. I'm just going to kind of go through this list. Pure. This is an attribute based on the character of God. Almost like holy, except it's highlighting the unmixed nature of wisdom. Uh, James has already shown us the importance of not being double-minded. 
And now he highlights wisdom as an action based on the character of God, being completely devoted to God and God alone, not wavering. It's one common goal for them all to love him. Peaceable. This person's demeanor is not quarrelsome or biting, but rather ready for unity and peace. Gentle. This person is the opposite of harsh and biting. They're gentle. They are thoughtful in their delivery of words. They think before they speak. They are gentle. Open to reason. I I like the way the ESV says this one. This is helpful. The idea here is there's a potential argument, a conversation, a conflict that's happening. This person is a humble participant, ready to hear what the other person has to say and think about it before they lash out, before they let that, that, that venom that's stored up underneath their tongue spit back. They're open to this idea, what are you saying? If it's truth, or if it's not compromising the truth, maybe I shouldn't have such a strong opinion about it then. This person is willing to say, if it's not a compromise of the truth, then yeah, I'll listen to you, brother. Let's, let's have a conversation instead. They're open to reason. Next one, full of mercy and good fruits. This is a little bit more than just saying merciful or producing good fruits. Uh, James is showing the character of a wise person as one that loves the world. He is full of mercy. That's the idea of showing love. I think about it as the opposite way that we just got described the tongue to us, right? The, the tongue, what is it? It says it's full of deadly poison. And here, we're not seeing full deadly poison. This person is full of mercy and good fruits. As though when they're controlled by the Holy Spirit, instead of biting nasty comments, stuff that is quarrelsome, instead it was coming out of them as good works, mercy, love for other people. They're ready to love and are practicing their love for their neighbors, to their neighbors, just as Jesus did. And like a tree that's planted by the river of water, bringing forth many good fruits They are ones that are bringing forth fruits of righteousness. That is their abundance. And then this last idea, well, second to last, impartial. We've talked about partiality at length already. This is a little different. It's the same idea, but he's explaining, instead of the the discussion that we had about when you are partial to a person, it really screws up this relationship with you and God. It doesn't make any sense at all. And there's a real problem in this vertical relationship. Now he's going to talk about the community. He's showing, this is what happens, we we talked back in chapter 2, when you talk about partiality, this is what's going on. What I want to talk about now, being impartial, is if you're partial, what does it do to these relationships around you? How does, when you be partial, how does it affect others? Whether it's because they're of poor class or different skin color or they're just weird, whatever that is, that's not the way that he talks about it. But rather, this type of wisdom is impartial and loves all. Last one, sincere Uh, there's no faking it. It's not they stand up and say one thing and then they do another. This wisdom instead is genuine. Their story stays the same. They're always willing to speak the truth instead of hiding it back behind and have persons think a certain thing about them. They're willing to tell the truth. They're genuine. They're sincere. He obviously wants to see them be honest. This whole list, this whole list is quite specific in its focus. James could talk about all kinds of qualities and and they they would be good. To all, if we just we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, these would be excellent things to talk about. But he has a purpose. He is obviously trying to take us and make a connection between wisdom and peacemaking. He is not leaving it just in the ethereal realm of wisdom. He's saying it works out amongst yourselves, that it will result in peacemaking. That the way that you treat each other show whether or not you have true wisdom or demonic wisdom. 
Anti-wisdom brings quarreling, cliques, disunity. Wisdom brings peace and a harvest of righteousness. This leads us to verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The section comes to an explicit statement concerning peace. There's no, like, there's no questions anymore. Our suspicions have been satisfied. That's where he's trying to go, to understand peace, to be making peacemakers. James has come and brought us all the way here, and all things he's just mentioned on his virtue list, and, and, and the truth is many, many more than just that, this harvest of righteousness, they do not come. All these things don't come out of a garden of pride and selfish ambition and jealousy. They can't. They can't grow there. The fruit of the Spirit cannot grow out of a heart that doesn't have Jesus as its center. They cannot grow in a community where disunity abounds. It's impossible. James is pointing to us and saying, peace, this is the way it's supposed to be. And this is important that you would not only be a people of peace, but that you'd be peacemakers, making it clear that the community of Jesus Christ ought to be about peace, loving one another. This peace, then, is the fruit of humility and meekness working out with others. Think about that. It's humility and meekness interacting with other people. What's the result? Peace. So that even though you may disagree on an opinion about something, you both can come to the table and say, is the truth compromised? No. Then we can work together. That's okay. You know, I don't need to be the one doing this thing. I don't need to have my name spoken much of. You know, I can give deference to you and love you that way. I can do that. Humility and meekness working itself out looks like peace with others. Next week, we're going to pick back up in verse 1 of chapter 4. And we're going to see, I mean, I'll warn you, it'll be, it will not be pretty. We are going to see that James confronts his listeners and reveals the depths of their sinfulness. So with that little bit of encouragement, make sure you come back next week. What have we learned then from James's passage today? I'm going to point out three things I want you to consider. Number one, in verse 18, take a look at it. James talks about a harvest of righteousness. Also translated, fruit of righteousness. That's, a, that's completely fine to translate that fruit of righteousness. This is obviously something as Christians we'd all want to see. We'd want a harvest or fruit of righteousness in our life. I, I was praying Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for some of our members this week and, uh, and for my family, and I regularly pray that one. And I got to the end, and I was like blown away, and I forgot that this lined up. Paul in Philippians 1, he's praying for the believers. In verse 11, he prays this, that all believers would be filled with the righteousness I'm sorry, filled with the fruit of righteousness, but that's not all, that comes through Jesus Christ. If we think that we can somehow, this morning, tomorrow, the rest of our lives, produce this by getting all of our stuff right in and of ourselves, we've missed it. Paul even prays for the believers at Philippi saying, I'm praying that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I, I, I want to highlight to us that our basis, our motivation, and our power can only come through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's that same thing that we heralded last week. No man can tame the tongue, but Jesus can. That is not a hokey saying, guys. That's why we're here. 
we have nothing good in and of ourselves. We want to produce good works. Absolutely, that's because Jesus Christ has changed us. He's the hero. He's the one we hope in. He's the one we sing about, for goodness sake. I don't want to sing about anybody else, really. Maybe my wife, but that's about it. Maybe some goofy songs about you guys. But like, like the, the only person I sing in adoration and praise is because he gave his life for me. When we start to see him who he is, we realize how small we are. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we could ever produce fruit of righteousness. So my, my first admonition to us is, guys, this isn't you. This isn't you going back and making your list and trying to do it. How do you do it at the end of the day? Oh, I tried, I tried, I tried. I made more mistakes. Absolutely you made mistakes. The first thing you should say is, Jesus is God. I love you. Looking at his word, knowing who he is, being amazed and treasuring Christ because he is glorious. If you think I'm a fanatic, awesome. Jesus is worth being a fanatic about. And not like it's Club Jesus. It's because he's real and he's changed our lives. And he's taken our, he's substituted our filthy rags for his righteousness. That is the wonder of the gospel. And you stand now, if you stand in Christ, you stand before God perfect in him. And thus our lives should look like, I want fruits of righteousness coming out through Jesus Christ alone. And Galatians 2.20 starts to make a lot more sense to us then. I want, G I want to be crucified with Christ and Jesus to live through me. The only way I can do that, I love that he follows this up, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's who our hope is in today, guys. Number two, let's listen to James. We must pursue true wisdom. We have to reject this idea of demonic, worldly wisdom. Wisdom is being, it, it, it's not being ready with the right Bible passages. Wisdom is not holding to the right system of theology or telling a heretic, you know, exactly what's wrong with his theology. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is about living according to God's law in humility. It's not about saying wisely. It's about doing and living wisely. That's where we're starting. That's where he says to prove it. He doesn't tell me, say, Get, tell me all the right stuff. He says, live it out. Show me. And so when we see this, we realize that a wise person's life, their good conduct, is full of actions of love that are always done in humility. Wisdom is about living according to God's law in humility. I just ask you to consider your own motives, your own heart in this. Consider why you do things. To actually ask yourself if there is possibly selfish ambition or jealousy ever in you. In your situations, whether it means a desire for power, however big or small that might be, or maybe, maybe it isn't a desire to be the top dog. Maybe it's just a desire that's selfish, that you want things the way that you want them. You're okay with not being at the top of the class. You just want to make sure it's comfortable or done your way or whatever the thing is. Because what you're really worried about, you don't really care about being on the top. You really care about what you want. Which is still, you're not, you've put you as the king instead of Jesus as the king of your life. So what, what are your motivations? I'm asking you to look at your own heart to ask God for insight and repentance. For he surely will give it to us. He wants that. Lastly, uh, let us follow the greatest example of humility and meekness you probably know where I'm going to go with this. Not only was Jesus and is the power that when we trust in him that we can do this life, he is also the greatest example. I'm going to read Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is our greatest example. If anyone had a right to boast, it was Jesus. But instead, he puts off and becomes humanity for our sake, humbles himself, becoming obedient to the death of the cross. If humility, guys, was a defining characteristic for our Lord Jesus himself, let us follow him and do works in the meekness of wisdom. Let's pray. God, we need you. We thank you for changing us, and we thank you for your word, but we need you to go on today so that we would be wise and we'd act wise. We want to be peacemakers. We want to be those who actually don't have selfish ambition constantly working its way out in our relationships, but rather that we would be making peace, that we'd be gentle and pure. God, would you make us like you? Cause our affections to be pulled to Jesus Christ and him alone. You are the great teacher, and so we ask for you to do this in us, changing us and making us more like yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.